the quantum mechanics. Yes, we're the quantum mechanics. We're the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everyone in between. Um, and Ben, there's been a story I've been really kind of interested in this week. I don't know if you've seen this. I'd never heard of this before, but did you hear that there was a kind of Atlantis-type city that was lost off the coast of Wales? No. Apparently, it was called the Welsh Atlantis. Uh, it's it's one of those, again, we've picked something that I'm not going to be able to pronounce, so let me have a go at it. Oh, God, is it a Welsh word? It is. Oh, no, sorry, everyone. I couldn't do it either. So the, the story I read, which was uh, in the Star in the BBC, was for almost a thousand years, rumours have circulated about the ancient kingdom of... Oh, here we go. Uh... Cantrera Gwaelod. So that's C A N T R E apostrophe R, new word G W O E L O D. Contrera Gwaelod? Do you think that's. That, I think you've done really well. Like, uh, there's no way I'm even going to attempt that. I think that sounds perfect. So, rumours of this kind of sunken city. Um, off the coast in Wales have been circulating for a while and they've just unearthed a 13th century map that basically shows these islands on the map or this 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 uh yeah these two islands which have also obviously got buried over time and they were inhabited yeah apparently um yeah they uh, the rumors have gone for a long time and uh the Simon Hazlitt, who's an honorary professor of physical geography at Swansea University, and David Willis, who's a Jesus professor at the University of Oxford, which is a great title, I think, uh, they presented new evidence that two islands did once exist uh, off the bay in Wales. Uh, one island is offshore between Aberystwyth and Aberdyfi. God. and a further northwards toward Barmouth in Gwynedd. Hassett claims the Welsh Atlantis is marked on a medieval goth map, which is the oldest surviving complete map of the British Isles, possibly from around 1280. And it's kept at the Bodleian Library in Oxford University. He told the BBC the two islands are clearly marked and may co- collaborate contemporary accounts of a lost land mentioned in the black book of Carl Mathan in 1250. That's fast, sort of really fascinating. I had literally no idea. There's not something, you know, you've ever talked about in school or whatever. So yeah. presumably there's going to be some ruins of buildings and things. On you would that. think, you think they'd be kind of, it can't be that difficult to investigate. You just got to dive down right, yeah, and find yeah. it. But yeah, no, so... It's, it was supposed to be a kind of mythical story of a Welsh version of Atlantis, but they found it on these ancient maps that seem to think it does exist, unless it's one of those Mandela effect stories. Yeah, it reminds me slightly of um, High Brazil. Yes, exactly, yeah, yeah. Which is supposed to um, exist off the coast of Ireland. Yeah. Which, yeah, but I think that is more mythical, although it appears on some maps, that is more mythical. This is obviously more rooted in actual fact. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's, I've been kind of obsessing about that because, like I said, it, and you alluded to it, kind of, it has kind of uh, connotations of the kind of Atlantis story of secret places, of 
you know, bit of Mandela effect. So yeah, no, it kind of sparked my interest, that story. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really good. That's really good. Well, I will follow that one because if anything's uncovered, wouldn't it be amazing if they found some old artefacts, you know, which proved that there was a different level of civilization there? That'd be amazing. That'd be brilliant, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would, it would. Um, so let's let's talk about what I was looking at this week. And I was I was thinking about what to do for the show. And then there was a moment um, about Monday when I realised how much of the world is in threes. Okay. So three little pigs. Yeah. Um, if, if you look at religion, um, you know, the, the, the holy trinity. Three blood mice. The three degrees. Yeah. <laughs> so much is three. And... I thought, I wonder why that is. I wonder if there's some sort of um, mythical reason why we sort of talk about three so much. And boy, that got me into a world of numbers. And oh. I did I did what I always do and bought a <laughs> really bought, difficult bought a book. book I, I bought a book, a really difficult book. But we'll, we'll get there in a minute because it gave me a bit of an answer to why perhaps we're so fascinated by the number three. It, it wasn't one of those that only had three pages, was it? No, it wasn't. I'm going to hold it up to you now across the room. It's not too massive. As no, you that looks see. all right. That looks manageable. It is quite manageable, except when you open it up and it's <laughs> full reading of it. equations. <laughs> I'll tell you about that book in a minute. But the first thing I did was dive into the work of Michael Eck, and he runs a blog about the number three. Ah. And... I was wondering whether this was going to provide any value. And he does talk a lot about um, the number three in culture. But some of the the key sort of things that I took away from it were immediately he talks about the Trinity symbol. Now, when when I just said Trinity, I was thinking about the Holy Trinity because that's something that we're sort of very familiar with, Mm. uh, with Catholicism and that sort of thing. But... um, he talks about uh, the Trinity symbol as something which represents the unity of body, mind, and spirit. And of course, we're all we'll 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 have a look at this um, symbol on our social media. But I'm actually familiar with with it when I see it, and I guess most of you will be as well. And this they all, that three is also making me think, and I know it's probably inspired by a lot of this. Is the uh, Deathly Hallows in Harry Potter. Oh, yes. Because there's three elements to that and there's that backstory, isn't there, about the three brothers. And so, yeah, that ties through in that as well. Yeah. Well, I, she may well have got the idea from this. Um, this this symbol was um, popularised by uh, Nicholas Rorick, who is a Russian-born artist who used it in a lot of his art. But that, that Trinity symbol, you do find, um, according to Eck, you find this symbol sort of universally around the world. And another version of it is a, an Indian symbol called the Ch- uh, Chintamani. It's a sign of happiness and it uses a symbol similar to the previous one I was talking about. And uh, it appears in, uh, for example, works like the Three Treasures of Tibet... And it also appears on the breast of Christ in a famous painting um, uh, by Memling. And the Madonna of Strasbourg also wears it. And it's on the shields of the Crusaders and the coat of arms of the Templars. So it's it's something... So that started uh, as an Indian symbol and then has found its way into Christian culture. But the key thing about it is 
it represents three three elements. Um, it's quite uh, Celtic looking as well, isn't it? That the design. It, it is. It is. Well, funnily enough, I was just going to say the Celts have long been fascinated by um, the number three, and something that I had overlooked and he um, brought, brings up is that oak, ash and thorn are known as the fairy triad of trees. Where they grow together, it is said that still fairies live. So there's there's this notion, again, it seems like it's really, really similar. When you think about that idea of these three different trees coming together to provide a place for fairies to live, that is so similar to that idea from Christianity, isn't it? Or, or, or that one from the, the Indian culture, where three things come together to provide... You know, happiness or support or um, faith, whatever whatever the background is, it's this notion of three things. Mm, yeah. um, the Greeks used the number three a lot. Um, there were three fates, three graces, three gorgons, <laughs> and three furries. I don't think they mean uh, the same. The same fur. The not 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 the dressing up Could, bit. They'll cost you a fortune on eBay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And he goes on to make the point that even Cerberus was a three-headed dog. And I guess that brings us back to Harry Potter yeah, and the funny sort of as well, yeah. yeah. Um, so he, he points out, he, he, he goes into great depth about all these uses of three and then says, you know, this is a, uh, a worldwide phenomenon that is obviously rooted in something deeper than just a single belief system that is tied to any one particular culture. It appears to be uh, uh, not only in modern times, but it, it appears to have evolved into different meanings throughout the world. And you just kind of go, well, maybe it's just because three is, you know, it's. I guess it's a pleasing number, isn't it? It's sort of one, two, three. So f- suddenly you go from... A or B to many, if you see what I mean. You sort yeah, of, yeah. You, you know, the, the notion of, of having three things, there is a psychological point to it feels a lot more than one. It feels more than two more. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of, it's, it's a weird way to explain it. It does. But. It's making me think of two things. One, <laughs> I keep thinking of that Della Soul song, Three's the Magic Number. Oh, that's true. Well, they Which, knew what they were talking about. Yeah, yeah. They, they knew what they were talking about. But also, it kind of the triangle pyramids. You know, there's there's the three points. Which, yeah, there's something about that as well that's coming into my mind. Yeah, well, we are we are going to um, uh, to get onto that um, because I decided that um, I would bring in a little bit of science to this uh, because that. because that's where I started rooting around. But before I do because I don't want to like all of this is kind of paranormal because these the numbers I'm going to talk about are so insane although they come from the science you know they they are scientific principles they sound so bizarre that they are almost paranormal but one of the things that I was curious about and it wasn't until I started doing this research was why people talk about um, 3 a.m. being the witching hour. Now, I guess most people would talk about midnight being the witching hour. Well, um, in some uh, parts of theology and certainly in some parts of Catholicism, it is believed that Jesus died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
So it is a direct insult to Christianity to have dark things going on at three, three in the morning. Right. Yeah. And uh, Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr., you will know his name from the Amateurville horror. He's the guy who inspired it. Right. He murdered six members of his own family at three in the morning. And uh, you will also find 3AM occurring in The Exorcism of Emily Rose, if you've ever seen that film. 3AM plays a part in that as well. So there is... um, In those films, it probably comes about via our own knowledge of popular culture and how 3AM becomes a thing, because you will see in somehow... you will see in some Hammer horrors and other sort of popular culture, 3 a.m. tends to be when the paranormal activity comes comes to, uh, to bear or the vampire turns up or whatever. But it is interesting that that 3 o'clock keeps coming round and round and round and round and round. Yeah. So I thought, well, look, let's, let's work out why 3 might be valuable to us as not just as a species, but... Turns out it's valuable to us in our entire existence as a universe. And I dived into this book by Martin Rees called Just Six Numbers, The Deep Forces That Shape the Universe. And this is the book (laughs) that's been getting me up at five in the morning and scratching my head. Not three in the morning. Uh, Oh, Oh damn! <laughs> I should have I should have done that. And he talks about these these six numbers that shape us, and we'll talk a little bit about those. But to carry on with the number three and make this segue like it was a proper show that I'd produced, um, of course it, occur- it hadn't occurred to me until he he I, I read it in his book. We live in a three dimensional world, so. That three dimensions means, and this is where I have preceded what his explanation is to try and get it into something that I can understand and therefore hopefully get all of you to understand, because if I don't understand it, you're not going to understand it either, unless you are a very clever physicist and knew this already. But So what that means is um, forces like gravity and electricity obey something called the inverse square law. So that is that the force from a mass or charge is four times weaker if you go twice as far away, right? That is something that we did learn at school, right? So the inverse square law, you can predict the size of a force depending on how far away you are from it. And um, when you were at school, you might have drawn something that Michael Faraday came up with where you draw lines of force sprouting from every charge or mass. So um, if you were doing like mechanics in school and you were trying to work out what the friction coefficient is, you might have a a triangle and something uh, moving down the triangle and you're trying to find the friction coefficient, you might draw lines of force on it, right? right? Do you remember that? Vaguely. I was sat at the back quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, this this all, don't worry, we're not going to get all uh, mathematical, but the, there's a really, really, really important point to this. Because as he says, and it was Newton that first pointed this out, the trajectories of planets are controlled by a balance between the effects of gravity tending to pull them inwards and the centrifugal effect of their motion. Orbits in our solar system are stable in the sense that a slight change in a planet's speed would only nudge its orbit very slightly. But 
This stability would be lost if gravity followed an inverse cube or steeper law. So if there were, uh, it wasn't just three dimensions, it was four dimensions. And don't worry if you're screaming at me saying time is the fourth dimension. I'm going to address that in a minute. So if, if it were four dimensions or more, then an orbiting planet that was slowing down even slightly would then plunge ever faster into the sun rather than merely shift into a slightly smaller orbit because an inverse cube force strengthens so steeply towards the center and that would mean if you go the other way conversely a two-dimensional world an orbiting planet that was slightly speeded up would quickly spiral outwards into the darkness so this three-dimensional uh, world with which we live in and and you know universe with which we live in is incredibly important the number three is incredibly important otherwise the the universe would have just collapsed in on itself or at least the galaxies would have collapsed in on themselves or would have spun out there would be no planets uh, inhabiting a star system where they would sit there for long enough for intelligent life to form so Ben what <laughs> The one bit I took from that, which is slightly worrying and is going to keep me awake at night, which I've got enough to keep me awake at night as it is, <laughs> is you said that even a slight change could spiral the planet into the sun. That is the bit I'm going to remember from that last bit. That but you but that, that's, that's if it was a four-dimensional or more world. <sighs> God, thank God for the number three. Right, that's it. Yeah, that's it. And, and the reason that time isn't... It, it is sort of the fourth dimension, but it's three dimensions plus one, because what time does is give us the where this is, uh, the, the where and when this is happening, rather than cause the effect of it happening, if you sort of mean. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so you have those three forces, and then you ask the question, where and when, and time gives us that solution. Time Time's, is, time's the sat-nav. Time is the sat-nav. But this, and I'm not going to get into it here because this is for much cleverer people than I, but there is something which he discusses in the book and I was going to go into and then I realised I would have to be actual Stephen Hawkins, is there is the notion that because of those forces that I've just described, which would have collapsed or distributed the universe, if there were other dimensions, some people think that there are other dimensions, but they have collapsed in on each other, leaving this perfect three-dimensional world. So some people believe that they have right. mathematically proven that there were 12 dimensions, but they have <laughs> collapsed into themselves, allowing these three, because every other aspect of, the, uh, of existence would have been destroyed if they had... If they hadn't collapsed in on each other, that is the simplest way of putting it. There is an enormous equation which kind of explains some of this, and then some really incredible mathematical thinking around it, which I'm not going to go into because I'm much better at telling ghost stories. But I thought that is fascinating, right? So that yeah. number three is actually responsible for our entire existence, evolution, the fact that the Earth is here, the fact that we can look out across the universe and see all the other planets. It's the number three. Oh, I, I thought that last five minutes was, Ben, like you pitching for your TED talk. <laughs> um, I think it would be a Teddy talk. Uh, I, I didn't do very well in maths, but, um, but they, I think that's amazing. Fast, that, oh, well, I think the 12 thing down to three, the collapsing thing, that's really interesting. That's something to get my head around at some point. But, yeah, 
I hadn't really when when you first mentioned the kind of the value and the importance of uh, and the prevalence of the number three. I didn't even think about three dimensions at all. No, nor did I, nor did I. And it was only scouting around a topic, trying to work out why three was was such a thing that you sort of, that I, I, it, was, it, was a, it was a question of searching around the literature and I, I came across this book which explained it well. But the, there are other sort of slightly easier things to grasp, like the... A three-sided triangle is a very pleasing shape to draw and also it has lots of interesting aspects to it like the angles within it that you can play with and you can use triangles to determine you know how you would um, you know for example work out how to make a lever to lift a big rock something which would have been very important at one time but it doesn't necessarily it, it, it doesn't explain the, the deep importance it appears to have in, in people and uh, in our lives. And I suspect all of the reason why we have the three little pigs and the three blind mice, it feels like it is related to, you know, the Holy Trinity, ancient symbols of love, hope, peace, all of these things. It feels like... Because when you think about the three little pigs, they all have different characters, don't they? They yeah. represent something. I can't help think that that's, you know, there is there is something in that that is trying to be communicated. But the fact that it all comes down to the number three that we're even here is, is incredible. Well, the other thing on that that I was thinking as well, even, even in kind of more modern day... Um, because I always remember we're doing kind of presentations and talks to people. That's that's a saying as well, isn't it? Just make three points. Right, yeah. yeah. So, you know, and again, this could be, you know, I'm sitting here wondering if we pick the number six, <laughs> could we put together an episode about who are influential sixes? But you're right, there is something about three that just feels more prevalent. Well... I did find some research, but it wasn't it wasn't brilliant. So I'm going to do some more. I'm going to revisit this area. But there's a reason why we can remember uh, a certain number of numbers within a telephone number, but we can't remember. For example, you've just given me a Wi-Fi code. I can't remember that, but I can remember my parents' telephone number relatively easily. And there is there is a theory, nay, an argument that it relates to our early evolution in terms of it would be very, very useful for us as we're evolving to be able to count ripe fruit on a tree. So if you've got a family troop to feed, if, you, if you've got a, a group of people that are relying on you to do some gathering, you look at a tree and you count four, then you look at another tree and count eight, then you obviously want to go to the one with eight. But beyond sort of eight or nine, it doesn't really matter because you just know it's plentiful. So a tree right. with 40, you don't need to count one, two, three, four. You don't need to do that. But you do need to be able to tell the difference very quickly between two and four and four and eight and maybe eight and 12. And that is why we're so wired to be able to remember those short strings. And I think that's, that's a fascinating, fascinating thing. That is yeah. really fascinating. I never thought about that. It makes logical, complete logical sense. But yeah, wow. 
so that's that's why when you get those kind of bigger numbers you get kind of overwhelmed by it because you, we're almost pre-programmed that we just know that's big that's fine i don't need to know exactly that's that's amazing yeah yeah well that is i'm glad you said that because the, the 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 next number i want to talk about has got a lot of zeros in it and before we did this i realized i would have to count them the number we're talking about this is this is one of the one of the sixths is called n and it is equivalent to one and then 36 zeros right and this number measures the strength of the electrical forces that hold atoms together divided by the force of gravity between them and over a set of arguments he makes the point that if n had just a few less zeros only a short-lived miniature universe could exist no creatures could grow larger than insects and there would be no time for biological evolution so that that n number even though it is so large in in the amount of zeros is super super important to all of us wow um there's another one uh and this is my this is my favorite one actually so this is e and the value is 0.007 and it, you're going to think this is dull for a minute but wait it defines how firmly atomic nuclei bind together and how all the atoms on earth were made its value controls the power from the sun and more sensitively how stars transmute hydrogen into all the atoms of the periodic table carbon and oxygen are common whereas gold and uranium are rare because of what happens in the star so he says if e were to have been 0.008 then two protons would have been able to bind directly together so what you might say this would have happened readily in the, in the early universe so that no hydrogen would remain to provide the fuel in ordinary stars and water could never have existed. So a complex a universe with a complex chemistry requires E to be in the range of 0.006 to 0.008. So it requires it to be specifically 0.007. And... Whilst I was reading about that, uh, that basically what that means is at any one time, 0.007 of the fuel that the sun burns turns into something else. That's basically what it leaves behind. And joyously, he points out that the sun has used less than half of its available fuel resources. So, ooh. I know. <laughs> you started when you started that sentence. I was getting a bit worried, and now you've 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 reassured me. No, but that that one very specific number there is the reason why we have iron in the core of the Earth, and that the iron in the core of the Earth is one of the reasons why we all exist on it. And if if it were that point zero zero eight, the sun wouldn't exist. It would have collapsed. So, so all suns follow that same principle. All then. stars, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. There's um, there's another fun one. Uh, the cosmic uh, number omega measures the amount of material in our universe. So that's galaxies, diffused gas, and crucially, dark matter. And it tells us the relative importance of gravity and expansion energy in the universe. And it is through understanding that omega number that we realise 
that there is the universe is full of dark matter that we still don't really fully understand but it's uh it's that that when people say you know oh i don't understand what dark matter is is it just stuff that we can't see it is stuff that we can't see but our calculations on the mass of the universe mean that it must be there and uh, it's very you know it's obviously one of the um the things that people are striving to uncover um this is an interesting one uh lambda and i do remember this he points out that this was the biggest scientific news of 1998 Uh, an unsuspected new force a cosmic anti-gravity if you will controls the expansion of our universe even though it has no discernible effect on scales less than a billion light years it is destined to become ever more dominant over gravity and other forces as our universe becomes darker and emptier and fortunately for us lambda is very small otherwise its effect would have stopped galaxies and stars from forming and cosmic evolution would have been stifled before it could even begin so this is basically what happens to a universe that becomes becomes massive and uh, gravitational force becomes diminished because the bodies are so far far apart and electrical uh, charge plays no part obviously because we're talking about bodies far away from each other it's the lambda force that nobody fully understands but we can detect it's there um and then i suppose the, the last one is kind of like i guess the one where you kind of go wow okay so it's q and the the way he describes this is he says q is the seed for all cosmic structures stars galaxies clusters of galaxies and they were all imprinted with it in the big bang and the fabric of our universe depends on q and it represents the ratio of two fundamental energies and it is about one over one hundred thousand in value and he goes on to say if q were smaller the universe would be inert and structureless if q were much larger it would be a violent place in which no stars or solar systems could survive and it'd be dominated by black holes so again when we talk we we often talk about the term the goldilocks um planet because we're just the right distance between we're in the right zone all of these numbers are in the goldilocks uh, zone because of their uh, their very precise nature and incidentally of course goldilocks had three bears (laughs) and Uh, three beds and three bowls yeah yeah that's true that's true yeah yeah and like so those those are numbers which mathematically they govern they govern who we are and how we came into being and the fact that they're on such a knife edge i mean they have been used by some people um incorrectly for example in um in books to try to prove the the notion of a creator and it isn't really that when you sort of read around this topic and and um martin doesn't make this point explicitly but when i looked at some of his reference material it does it's like we are only experiencing one iteration of the universe it is possible and highly likely that this universe has been tried before 
And if the values were different before, that's the reason it doesn't exist anymore. The fact that we are living in one that does exist is because this particular iteration had all of these values within it. So is he saying or, or insinuating that, you know, we could be the 12th try of the universe and all these little equations have been being played with almost like a graphic equaliser to get it right? Oh, oh well, he he's not... Um, I wouldn't say he was insinuating it, but some of the source material insinuates well, that. Okay. But, it's, but not the 12th try, the infinite time. Okay. Um, and that is really difficult because when we talk about the three plus one dimensions, because they're all so tightly controlled, you can see it's very hard as an abstract concept, but when you consider that you you can see almost mathematically how you, how a fourth dimension would, would, would change things. If you had if you had a fourth dimension, that plus one would be different. So it isn't that um, you know, it's not like, oh, there's been you know, there was there was sev- several trillion years of this. Time is completely immaterial to previous universes. Mm. Um, and it's possible that there are some of those universes existing beyond our universe. They just have different laws of maths. But it's, it's probably likely that just in the infinite number of possibilities, we are living in the one which allows us to live. There will be others where those, those values are different. And they, they either have ceased to exist or they exist in a different place to us and they have those values and that is a very different a very very different universe and i'm assuming he hasn't done this but when he's looking in the book and going look if this was a you know amiga or whatever it is was a fraction or a number out then you know they they all seem like this universe wouldn't exist or the sun wouldn't exist or whatever (laughs) it could drive you mad that couldn't i wonder if he wakes up at 3 a.m and goes if I just tweak that number a little bit, I can make the world so much better. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it is amazing how just those tiny, tiny little... Um, it, it, it goes down to that, that granular level, particularly when you're talking about like the efficiency of um, the sun. It goes down to the, the reaction of how uh, individual atoms work, and it's down to the... Uh, the attraction between those atoms as governed by those various forces. And it's those that create the material, whether it be the hydrogen for the sun or the water for us to drink or the iron from which we, you know, make materials and stuff. Just just one change at that very, very tiny molecular level means that nothing, nothing would exist. And interestingly, have you ever sort of ever pondered perhaps in the shower or when you were going off to sleep what is smaller than an atom have you ever or what is smaller than a proton yeah yeah so he does pleasingly answer that oh in a way uh he says space can't be infinitely and indefinitely divided the details are still mysterious but most physicists suspect that there is some kind of granularity on a scale of 10 to the minus 33 centimetres. This is 20 powers of 10 smaller than an atomic nucleus. As big as a decrease, as many frames in our zoom lens depiction. So when he talks about the zoom lens depiction, he's talking about um, the way to imagine this is, um, which is I think is very pleasing. Imagine a picture of 
a person lying on some grass. We've seen this at the beginning of, um, I think, contact and you pull out into space and every time you in, you uh, make it 10 times wider so you get the grass with them lying on it then you get the city then you get the yeah. planet yeah so he's talking about imagine having a picture of you and then going in 10 times every frame and doing that for 10 to the power of minus 33 times he's saying that is when you get to that level of below the atomic nucleus but um <laughs> he then he then says we then encounter a barrier and I, I was i was worried about this he says if there were still tinier structures which we suspect there are they transcend our concepts of space and time and that is the thing that kind of this is where my mind sort of begins to explode because when when you get down to that but the smaller you get the less the the macro world seems to make sense in that tiny world and so what he's saying is that the the things that are smaller than that we don't know what they're doing they they are not obeying the same laws that are governing everything else that we see in the universe so we can only speculate about what they might be and how they might behave but it's, how does he know they're not obeying it well because we can't see them so we don't know so they might be but we're not sure that's right yeah, yeah. we suspect there are but they might not be but they might be i mean we've we probably all heard of quarks that appear to have very strange capabilities to appear and disappear at random and it's possible that we're getting into um something that doesn't behave in a in a way that works with the quantum <laughs> the quantum mechanics as we understand them in our universe and again this is for cleverer people than me to uh, to debate but if anyone says you know what is smaller than an atom you can say we can get down to about 10 to the power of minus 33 and then we're then we're stuck um but that, for, i'd love to just reel that out at a dinner party that made me sound really smart <laughs> well <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about 10 to the what was it minus 32 uh 33 33 here's two, a couple two of threes two, two threes oh yeah yeah well here's a couple of other pleasing numbers and um they don't mean too much except they are just pleasing so you and I and everyone listening, we are made up of about 10 to the power of 28 atoms. So that's, that's quite a lot of atoms. I wouldn't have, I, to be honest, I wouldn't have even been able to take a guess at that. No. But you can see this is, this is where his, his frame reference really comes in. Um, and I think it's, this, is, this is a great way to think about how those 10 to the powers of make a big difference so if you look at the person next to you they're between 10 to the power of 28 and 10 to the power of 29 atoms okay if you then take a telescope so the new the new one we've put up in space what's that the james yeah james, james martin yeah, the chef yeah. is it his yes, no, what's he called? Yeah. <laughs> makes a hell of a souffle as well as takes brilliant <laughs> pictures so the very best telescope that we have has within its range 10 to the power of 78 atoms so we are 10 to the 28 everything that we can see all in the sky with the best telescope that we've got looking the anywhere James you Webb want telescope. that's the fella 
10 to the 78. I think that's amazing. So hold on, let me let me get that right. So Ted says, say that again, say that again. I was obsessing about James Martin and James Webb. So the James May telescope. <laughs> the no, James Bond telescope. That's it. To the power of 007, that one. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> I'm here all night. <laughs> that is quite good, actually. I like that a lot. Um, so 10 to the 28, yeah. that's how many atoms you've got yeah. and I've got. 10 to the 78 is all the atoms within our field of vision using our very best telescope. Wow, okay. Doesn't sound like a big difference when you put it that way, does it? But that is the difference between us sitting here and the rest of the universe that is observable. <laughs> well, that's also, you know, the, the conversation we often have about um, what does an ant think when it's looking at the moon. So if you think of that concept... <laughs> So, I, you know, I'm not going to ask you to do the maths now, <laughs> but if, if we can see every, you know, just the, the correlation between that and these small, going back to these smaller atoms and creatures and size of insects, their kind of perception of the universe, it does show it's completely different, right? Yeah. In terms of scale and, yeah, wow. Well, some of these scales are crazy. He likes to sort of help us get our minds around this in a very useful way. So our sun is just a very ordinary star, of course. And it is part of a galaxy that we can see if we look across, you know, the Milky Way, we can see part of it, we can see the spiral arm. Um, this, is, this is not a, uh, a school test, but did, did you have any idea about how many stars are in um, our galaxy? I would just... The way I would answer that question, Ben... If you imagine me looking at an apple tree. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It was an unfair question, but it's 100 billion stars wow, okay. in our galaxy. And there are at least as many galaxies in our observable universe as there are stars in our galaxy. There's 100 billion stars in our galaxy and there are at least 100 billion galaxies in our observable okay, universe. That is just bonkers. And that is, you know, you kind of know it, but it's when you phrase it in that way, you just, your head explodes, doesn't it? It, it does. So this is, you know, to slightly bring it back, when Bob Lazar says, I've been backwards engineering technology from another planet, you kind of go, yeah, right, I'll buy that. <laughs> because you've got... You've got one... You've got a lot to choose from. There's there's 100 billion galaxies with 100 billion stars. So, yeah, yeah, there's probably a good chance. Although it does lend to that argument that there is so many, how would anyone find us, doesn't it? That's true. Yes, it does. It does. Um, and and that, is not, uh, that is not an inconsequential thing because people talk about our... Um, uh, uh, our radio signals going out, but when you talk about numbers like that, then obviously, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. But I just thought that was a very pleasing and simple way of thinking about how precarious. Not, I don't mean how precarious life is. Is as in you could get run over by a bus. I don't mean that. But how precarious. Everything that you look at, when you look up at all those stars and know that the number 0.007 is incredibly important. Yeah. And without it, 
it wouldn't work. Yeah. You just kind of think, God, the chances of this. And he does make the point later in the book um, that actually this is the universal language. And we, we sort of know this from, if you look into SETI stuff, uh, the way that we would say hello or communicate intelligence is using some of these numbers because they're a universal constant yeah. anywhere in the universe. So anybody that sees these numbers, any form of life that has you know got clever enough to look for us will know these constants as well and they will recognise them readily. Yeah, yeah. So I just think it's brilliant. So, you know, if, if, if you suddenly start sort of seeing the, the number 007, maybe... Maybe that's intelligent life talking to you, but I'm still I'm still not, not when Roger Moore was doing it. I, he's he's my favourite. <laughs> he is my favourite. I've got I've got to say. The other thing I was thinking while you were talking about this, and I've got no, no idea that it's got any connection, but I was thinking about those that uh, that phenomenon where random patterns end up being synchronised. You know, the, there's that one, isn't there, with the. Um, the ball bearings. Yeah, ball bearings. And there's yeah. the ones with the well, the things you have on a piano. What do you call them? Metronomes. Metronomes that if you put, they all synchronise after a while, don't they? Apparently. They do, yeah, yeah. But it, it kind of makes you think about the numbers, how... Has uh, that got anything to do with that? that? In some way, those numbers are pushing them together in that way? Uh, That's a broad question, isn't it? I don't know if that makes any sense. Please, anybody uh, listening to us, Quantum Mechanics, please tell me if what I just said was complete bullshit or there might be something in it. No, no, I hadn't thought of that. We should look look into it. But um, I think also I'd be interested, like people people listening to this from different cultures who, you know, because we're talking about this from a white Western British point of view with our frame of reference. But if you come from a cultural belief system where three is really important, I'd just be super interested to know like what it represents and why it's important to you. Because I imagine there are so, so, so many. Yeah. Well, I always remember um, when I lived in Japan that not all, not all buildings, but some buildings didn't have a fourth floor because four is an unlucky number that's associated with death. Um, so you'd, you'd get in a lift and there's some lifts and they'd just go from three to five. They wouldn't have a fourth floor. So that, that superstition around numbers and the attachment, let's say, to the meaning of numbers is, is strong in a lot of cultures. Yeah. But I guess it's with us, isn't it? It's like lucky seven or, you know, I get the 13 is supposed to be from the Last Supper and... You know, Judas betraying Jesus, so 13 became a kind of almost unlucky, evil number. Um, but I know there are other reasons for it as well, but, yeah. I've been in a hotel where there wasn't a 13th floor. Okay. Um, and I found... I was in America, actually, and it wasn't even spoken about. I was just curious. It went straight from, yeah, 12 to 14. And um, to some people it's normal, to others it seems odd. The other thing that um, was making me think around um, kind of ghosts and paranormal activity regarding this is when you were talking about the level that's lower than a photon or an atom, mm-hmm. you know, and that the fact that it's almost like it's so 
small or so <clears throat> unrecognizable to us that we we don't know how it works and we don't know um what's actually going on at that really sub level and that that, that made me think about the things we've talked about on the podcast before you know our ghosts and other paranormal activity they're actually could be quite normal activity it's just something we can't measure understand or read ourselves yes yeah uh, completely completely well it, it's interesting that we that number three thing i think the kind of cultural references of number three and those ties you know i think are really interesting and just just that I, I guess the argument against the book that you're quoting about, you know, if these numbers were out slightly, then this universe wouldn't exist or we wouldn't exist. Um, you could argue that's just the way it is, right? Because we do exist. Yeah, of course it would be. But there, uh, the other thing that... that it makes me think about is isn't it the fact that the moon is exactly the right size and distance <laughs> from yes. the sun that yes. that's why we can get a full eclipse that's right yes and if those numbers were out slightly we wouldn't have a full eclipse at all that one always just blows my mind yeah yeah i don't think that's related to these numbers but it's just an extraordinary coincidence yeah but it's related in the sense of if if it anything would change you know the sun had been in a slightly different position <laughs> relatively uh, or the moon had been a slightly different size or we'd been in a slightly different position on the earth this whole th- that whole thing wouldn't work and that's I mean maybe I'm tying it back of yeah it's just a coincidence and that that's what it is but you know it oh god it is a subject that just blows your mind doesn't it you, you would go mad just thinking of these connections wouldn't you oh you you'd go you you'd go completely mad and you go you you end up going mad when you start thinking about things like um so so martin talks about whether any of these things rule in or rule out um the multiverse and he basically says it's it is no more than a tentative hypothesis that it could be true. But these numbers don't help us get to an understanding of that. He's just trying to answer the, yeah. the the curious readers like, well, does this mean that that could happen? And he's like, well, no, this this it neither rules it in nor rules it out. It just is. And does a multiverse have to have these um, this same set of numbers? The jury's out because we don't know a universe which doesn't have these numbers. There might be unrelated consequences of tweaking something, which although, you know, we can predict that, for example, if there were four dimensions, all the planets would whack into the suns. But because we haven't experimented with it, we know that's what will happen. But what might be the, you know, what might be another consequence of having four dimensions? We don't know because we don't live in that world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't know what the fourth dimension is, so we can't predict it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, blimey. It's good, isn't it? <laughs> you blow my mind. You blow my mind with that. I kind of... Yeah, it's it's a crazy concept. I, I, and you kind of see... 
there's all those stories of people, aren't they, when they're kind of people who are working with pi and trying to do these massive equations just going absolutely mad. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of see, because once you start down it, it's that mixture of being so logical and there is something, like you said, that the 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 universal language of numbers and maths uh that it it's it's the fact it's so what's the word it's so consistent that when you put in some kind of ambiguity or lack of understanding into it it, the possibilities are endless right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah they they are they are um and I, i just think it's fun to i think it's just fun to play with those vast 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 numbers one thing I was work, trying to work out was whether if I lost some weight I would have less atoms and I probably would so uh, it's also it's reminded me a bit of those kind of ideas of probability and chance and all those things we had a weird one on holiday so um, Yahtzee right it's the ultimate holiday game right it, it, most people will know what that is it's a dice game and you have to do certain things and the idea that you roll five numbers all the same within three turns, you know, it's quite difficult to do. Um, my son rolled three within <laughs> one game. So you get 13 rolls out of his 13 rolls, 13 goes, let's say, 13 goes of three rolls. He managed to get three Yahtzees in one game. Never seen it before. Blew my mind. I don't, I don't know what the odds of that are, but they must be pretty high. Go and get him to buy some lottery tickets. Yeah, exactly. Immediately. Yeah, immediately. Excellent. Well, go and ponder on the number three, and I will leave you with the thought that the ancient Greek philosopher Pythagoras, he said that number three was the perfect number. It was the number of harmony, wisdom, and understanding. Time, past, present, future, birth, life beginning middle end it was the number of the divine and that is why it is in the fairy tales and certainly rings true in our visually sumptuous worlds of art and science is the way he put it so ponder on what pythagoras said when you're singing three blind mice to your kids yeah (laughs) it's just a theory (laughs) you can prove anything with facts (laughs) excellent well we'll be back with uh, more weirdness next week yeah it'll be more supernatural next week I think yeah I think I'm going to do next week I think I I will see but I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to go down a psychic route next week, I think. I um, thought you were. And I've done a lot. I've been doing, <laughs> I've been researching Jack the Ripper a lot, so I'll leave you that little teaser. Ooh. Uh, oh, excellent. Well, uh, I'll, uh, I'll stand by. <laughs> excellent. All right, well, we'll see you next week on <laughs> the Quantum Mechanics. Bye. Bye. Quantum mechanics.